This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. This is Michael Morell, and this is a bonus episode of Intelligence Matters. Today, we're bringing you a panel discussion on the media's coverage of the intelligence community that I led in partnership with the Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence at George Mason University's Schar School, where I am a senior fellow. I found the discussion fascinating, in large part because of the high caliber of the panelists. Andrea Mitchell of NBC News, Suzanne Kelly of The Cipher Brief, and David Ignatius and Peter Finn of The Washington Post. Sit back and listen to some important insights on journalism and intelligence. Good evening, everybody. It's great to have everybody here. Um, I want to thank all of our panelists. Um, Shar School appreciates it. General Hayden appreciates it. I appreciate it. Um, I think we're going to have a great discussion. You know, the people in the intelligence community who I worked with at senior levels really do believe that the media plays an important role in overseeing intelligence activities, you know, for the purpose of ensuring we're doing our job, for the purpose of ensuring that we're living up to the Constitution and the laws of the United States and the values of the United States, and to ensure that we're using the taxpayer's money um, in the best way possible. Um, you know, not everybody in the community believes that but the vast majority of the leadership does. Um, And that's why this is on the program. Um, So I think where I'd want to start is asking you, Andrea, is do you actually think about that point, right, that you're actually playing an important role here in overseeing the community as you do your job every day? Thank you very much. And first, I just want to say to General Hayden and Mrs. Hayden how pleased and honored we are to be here. And it's such a tribute to both of you that this turnout and this panel, uh, it, it really is all about you. And, and just a word for some of the others whom I work with, Bill Harlow, what can I say about Bill Harlow that uh, hasn't been said by people praising him and what he contributed and the, what he established for Amanda and Dean and Tim and you know, everyone who has followed in those roles, uh, which are so critical. Uh, I believe very strongly in our responsibility and our responsibility to the public and our responsibility to the community. Um, We consider everything that we write or speak about the intelligence services, the agencies, as being vital to the national security of our country and as involving potentially um, the safety and security of the people in the field. I was so moved at the Spy Museum's gala by the uh, speech that Admiral McRaven gave. It brought tears to a lot of eyes around the the room, and I I hope you saw a video of it, General, because it was just an amazing tribute from a uniformed service to the often secret, um, by necessity, covert work that is done in, in the field around the world as he put it, I think, and I'm paraphrasing, the people who don't have the armor, don't have you know, the tanks, and don't arrive in uniform, and don't have any 
exit strategy, uh, really, in, in times of dire need. So we've seen the stars on the wall, and I think um, a lot of us have been very concerned, in particular, over the last two and a half years about the way the intelligence community has been described in public as we've become so politicized and polarized, really, uh, by the, uh, the investigation and what's followed, and we're in a critical week. So yes, we think about it. As, I, I, as a White House correspondent years and years ago covering Ronald Reagan for eight years, I would walk through those gates every day, and as I walked past the Northwest Gate, think about my responsibility as a reporter, whether I'm covering foreign or domestic policy, to communicate to the, the country, to the world, to the voters, to the citizens of our country, what, is, what our government is doing and in particular uh, in the national security arena, and in particular for our intelligence services. Let me just, just pick up your point about the pressure on the intelligence community for the past two and a half years. Um, how, how do you all think the intelligence community has handled that? What grade would you give the leadership of the intelligence community, any of you? Well, <laughs> let, let, me, let me start off. Um, this has, has been, a, a, I'm sure, a traumatic time for people in the intelligence business, um, being uh, directly or indirectly criticized by the president. Uh, that's not the, the situation any intelligence chief or officer would want to be in. And uh, I think one of the, the things that is reassuring about our country in this period where, you know, it's like, being in an airplane that's bumping around, you don't know whether you're about to lose it, um, is the, the professionalism of our military, our intelligence services, law enforcement, the way that they keep doing their jobs. And when I travel overseas and talk to people from foreign governments, that's what they always focus on, uh, is the kind of continuity and consistency of American power. So. Um, it must take enormous discipline and self-restraint to do their jobs in such a politicized environment. Um, we don't make their jobs any easier uh, in the media, nor should we. Uh, our, our job isn't to be supportive of them, however much we may admire the job they're doing, but to be, to be critical. Let me just say one additional thing following Andrea. Um, it's really uh, special for us to be here in the presence of General Hayden and, and his wife. Um, through many jobs, I first met Mike Hayden when he was director of the NSA. Uh, he met with journalists then to try to talk within the limits about what he, what he, he could. I remember when he was deputy director of national intelligence and then when he was CI director. And, uh, through a long career, um, Mike Hayden tried to balance secrecy, which was his basic job, with trying to be accountable uh, in, in conversation. So, uh, Mike, it's great to be here, you know, in your, in your presence at your center. Thank you. Peter, does it? I'll, go ahead, just say, I'll, just, I'll just add one thing, which is I started covering the intelligence community as a reporter about a decade or so ago. And I've noticed a transformation in those 10 years and a big push toward what used to be very closely held information and a wall up uh, in terms of sharing information with the press be chipped away at in what I think is a good way. Um, it started when Keith Alexander was at the NSA. For the first time, he was allowing television crews into the NSA, giving a little bit more information. Um, we had similar. Uh, issues with the CIA when all of a sudden before they wouldn't give comments on things, being a little bit easier to work with and giving you some information to provide context around some of the things that were happening that they didn't give before. And so the US sort of media consumers were left not always getting all the facts. I've seen a big change just in that over the past 10 years or so. I would just add that um, I think the current director is setting the tone for how they're handling um, the White House at the moment, which is to keep their heads down and do their work. Um, I think Gina Haspel has had one public appearance. She has another one coming up this week uh, on Thursday. Good day to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, 
there is very little director media engagement at the moment in contrast to my memory of previous directors who had, you know, um, private briefings, who had dinner with reporters, um, who engaged with them a little more than is happening now. And I understand why that's happening, but um, I wonder if it might not be reconsidered. The only other counterpoint to what you said is they are keeping their heads down, and I'm curious um, how inside the agency, how vocal John Brennan and um, others are who are former senior leaders on the current administration, how those kinds of statements are being read inside the intelligence so, community. So, so we all understand why they're keeping their heads down, right? Boy, that makes sense. But is there long-term damage to that, do you think? Long-term damage in... To the community, to the community of not being out there and not being more transparent. I think that this is a community that's um, over time weathered many crises um, and has the ability to emerge. And I think my guess is that um, they will um, emerge from this. Um, they may be scarred by some of um, what they're hearing and some of the criticism, but um, I don't see it as um, debilitating. I think the, uh, the threat assessment testimony proved that they are following their core mission. And uh, at least in the unclassified session, they were clearly um, following the guidance of, and the an analysis of the professionals. And it was uh, professional and brave. And they took a lot of heat. So I think it's understandable that they need to keep their head down. I, like Peter, would love to see more backgrounding and um, more transparency in some sort of uh, traditional off-the-record or deep background basis. But that said, as General Mattis showed from the Pentagon, uh, where he really reduced the access of the Pentagon press corps from my colleague's perspective, um, he realized that to protect his core mission, he needed to do that because raising your head, uh, you can only do it once or twice. Mm -hmm. And we've seen what the result is. So this is a very, I would say, a very tenuous time for the community. Mm -hmm. And I think they need to focus on their job as, as frustrating as it can be for those of us in the media. Um, does it strike you all how similar these professions are? Um, search for the truth use of confidential sources, the protection of those sources at extraordinarily high cost. Um, it, really is, it really is interesting how, how, how many parallels there are. David, you've, you've written novels about the spy world. How do you, how do you think about that? Well, I think the two uh, professions are, are eerily similar. Um, in the news business, um, you want to make information public that's not public. Uh, you want to draw it out of people. And so you look for the people who know important information, and you develop relationships of trust with them. Uh, sometimes it takes months. I can think of stories for me that it took years. But you work it slowly. Uh, one nice thing about being a journalist is you don't get dropped around in different management spots. So I still try to stay in touch with sources I've met 35 or more years ago in the Middle East. Uh, so so you, you develop the sources. You try to maintain relationships of trust with them. You certainly try to protect them. You try to avoid being manipulated by them and their agendas, much as intelligence officers should, although I've seen many cases where they've been prisoners of their information rather than masters of it. Uh, and then your responsibility, we combine in the, in the journalist, both the, the collector and the analyst. Uh, we, we collect the information, then we try to make sense of it. Uh, we write a, a story that try to, tries to organize the facts with a lead, with a, just a clarity. Um, and then, obviously, our job is, is to tell the truth. Um, I've always uh, thought there's a tension for us, I'm going to depart now from the things that are similar, between our obligation to our readers. I always think I work for my readers. 
That's how I should judge what the right thing to do is. But uh, in truth, we work for our publishers. You know, our publishers mediate that relationship with, between our readers, and our publishers decide what, in the end, they want to they they want to publish. If we don't like it, we can quit. Um, but I, I think it's it's fascinating that the media and the intelligence business are in this inevitable and appropriate conflict because what we do is so similar. Anybody else want to comment? Well, I think the tension is just a daily fact of life for us. And um, as David alluded to, intelligence reporting in particular, I think, is um, built on fragments of information that is, are slowly collected and assembled. Um, people have the illusion that some wonderful source walks up to reporters and gives them um, exclusives, and that's not the way it works. They are, they are closely reading congressional testimony to see what hints or feints might be in it. They are talking to people on the Hill. They are talking to people in embassies. They're talking uh, sometimes to foreign intelligence services. They're talking to farmers, and all of you know that uh, reporters are contacting you all the time. They're talking to contractors to try and assemble a picture and the good reporters are approaching CIA or NSA when they already have a pretty good sense of where they're going with the story. Now, they may get beaten back some, or they may not, but you're not calling up CIA with some on a fishing expedition, or you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, this is slow, methodical work, and the best reporting is built over time. I think it's a great note what David said about working for your publishers. And after spending an entire career as a journalist, I decided to become my own publisher, which was a bit of a risk, you know, midlife um, to make that shift. But I feel like it has allowed me and my colleagues at the Cypher Brief to focus on something that doesn't always get appropriate context. I think there's always that rush to get out a good headline, rush to get out a good piece of information from a source. But to Peter's point, it takes a long time to make sure that you're reporting that in a way that is responsible and that's going to allow people to make informed decisions about how they feel about a lot of the issues that are defining who we are as Americans, whether it's enhanced interrogation or what the NSA is collecting or not collecting. I think understanding the reasons why they're doing that is what makes people like my mother is my barometer of the American people. I mean, if she understands a topic, I feel pretty good about it. If she asks me questions like, why would the NSA just spy on us like that? They have all this information. Then I'm thinking, OK, let's just add pieces of information and see how that changes how you feel about it. And I think that's a really important thing that's sometimes missing in the rush to get out a headline or please your, your editors, your publishers. So maybe you guys aren't going to want to answer this question. but. Um, boy, the shoe's on the other foot here. Um, <laughs> big picture, big picture. Um, where do most of the leaks come from? Um, come big on. picture. You know, is it is it the Hill? Is it the executive branch? Is it you know the IC in the executive branch? Is it the policy agencies? Uh, is it formers? Um, you know, if you're, if you're inside of an intelligence agency, you take a polygraph every five years and you get asked a question about inappropriate contacts with the media, right? So I never thought that there were a lot of leaks coming out of CIA. You know, I always thought the leaks were largely CIA to formers to the media. Um, and so I'm just wondering to what extent you're, you're willing to answer that question. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. No, I mean, I think. I mean, I think the fiction is that it, everything comes off the hill. That's what most administrations think. Um, actually, let me just turn it around and say that so-called leaks of pending, impending policy decisions, let's say, are much less valuable now in the world of Donald Trump. Because <laughs> frankly, there is, this is a slight exaggeration, but there really is no interagency process. There's no deputies committee. There's no um, you know, analysis that goes up and gets sort of 
debated internally because things can change in the instant of a tweet. Um, a Secretary of State can be fired at 8.40 in the morning on a Monday morning. And you know, we, we have no preparation for that. There have been lots of threats along the way and lots of tension, but um, then there are the reversals and the backspins and um, where you, you, know, you can find a leak that says that there was a consideration twice in recent history on separating children or reinstituting separating children and then or another leak that says there's been consideration of bringing um, migrants to you know, sanctuary cities and then we're told authoritatively supposedly that that has been dispensed with because it was illegal and nobody wanted to do it and then I was interviewing a senator on several of the committees at 12.35 p.m. live and um, the tweet came out, yes, I strongly want to do this. And all of a sudden, the interview that I thought was going to be on one subject was, excuse me, Senator, but the president has just tweeted that he really does want to do that after all. So uh, whether it is to be provocative, to appeal to the base, whether it's pure politics, whether it's um, emotion, um, anger at the bureaucracy or the deep state, whatever you want to call it, Policy isn't policy until the president announces it, and even then he can say, um, I never really considered something that I said I was going to do last week, and that wasn't me. Yeah. So, so one thing I heard you say that's interesting is with less process, there's less touch points Absolutely. for reporters to, to, to get information from. But there's also, I mean, there's, there are fewer leaks, let's say, that are credible. I mean, you have to be very, very careful about what you report because he can reverse it with a flip of a switch or a, a, a so, so, so I'm wondering if you think reporting, and maybe Peter, this is a place to start with you, if you think reporting on intelligence activities is inherently more difficult because of the secrecy than reporting on perhaps other government activities. Yes, yeah, that's a really, I mean, it's the nature of the intelligence community to want to protect its information, to share only um, what it views is in its interest um, or that it can put out. But um, as I said, people build up stories very slowly and incrementally. Um, and when you ask who leaks, I mean, it could be everyone and anyone. There's no uh, defined source for leaks. There's no, um, often what you might think of it as a leak is actually the work of weeks and weeks and weeks and talking to multiple, multiple people that in the end, when you read it, may look like someone leaked that information, but um, may have been the intuition of the reporter, the experience of the reporter, his daily conversations may have triggered something that he began to look into. I don't think um, that leaks in, within the intelligence world are um, like whispers on Capitol Hill about the latest political development. It's a very, very different form of journalism. I think too, you know, the secret kind of is, it's not really a secret, the source of every leak is a person with an agenda. It doesn't really matter where they come from, whether they feel like they're filling a whistleblower role or they, they have a constituency they want to, you know, get a story out and spun in a certain way. I mean, the league is only going to give you a piece of the story, and it's the responsibility to not allow yourself to be manipulated, as David referred to earlier, to sort of vet those leaks. And, and I wonder sometimes if that's being done to the extent that it should be and that it once was. Yeah, I'd, I'd just add, um, as Peter said, um, stories uh, emerge over, over a long time time, um, and you know, you know the Agatha Christie novel where it turns out everybody had a hand in the killing, um, you know, sometimes stories are that, that way. There's just so many different uh, sources who informed um, the process of reporting, and then finally you get something that nails it, and sometimes that becomes the hard fact on which everything is hung, like a a suit hanging on a, on, a, on a hanger, but there's all this other collateral stuff that led you to the point where you got that, that, one, uh, that one source. 
Just to underline what um, Suzanne said, because I think it's really important. Every piece of information that comes to us in the, in the news media comes with some spin. Uh, people do have agendas. They want to settle scores. They want to advance policy agendas. Uh, the CIA, in general, doesn't leak to the U.S. media. You're not allowed to. But that doesn't mean other intelligence services don't. Uh, and they, it's not always clear to us that they're behind information that we're getting. So I think one thing that we need to do better is uh, be more transparent within the limits of protecting our sources with readers about the baggage that comes attached with the information that we're sharing. Because sometimes that's as important as the mm -hmm. piece of information, why somebody was so determined to put it out. And if you don't know that, it's really hard to evaluate the, the information. That's especially true in this period where the tools of surveillance, the ability to collect uh, you know, right here from every, every cell phone that everyone has, is vulnerable to new techniques of, of, of surveillance. Uh, we've been writing about that with an Israeli company that does this, but there are many companies around the world that do it, which mean, means that, that any piece of private information potentially could get hacked and then dished to us in the news media. Anything. Anybody with an agenda who wants to take somebody down, wants to take a government down, uh, you know, has that avenue. And I think it's something we in the news media have to think a lot more about to make sure that we're not being used and manipulated by people with this information that they've grabbed uh, in their agendas as opposed to our readers, what our readers care about. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion on journalism and intelligence. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down, you can't avoid it, you can't stop it, but you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So let's keep this theme of secrecy going here. Um, we all know that the individual with a clearance who provides classified information to a journalist is committing a crime. And we all know that, I was going to say thanks to James Madison, but I guess I should say thanks to George Mason, um, <laughs> that when you report it, you're not. Um, but I'm wondering how you think about your responsibility with regard to handling classified information, and, 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 and maybe each one of you should answer this question, because I think it's so important. Um, and then I want to take how you answer that question, and I want to shift to the WikiLeaks and whether you think or not WikiLeaks is deserving of First Amendment protections. But let's, let's talk about the responsibilities of journalists in handling classified information first. Andrea. I think you have to decide what the public interest is, and well, the, the threshold question is, does it does disseminating that information endanger someone's life or national security? And there have been many conversations over the years with all of our editors and publishers when there are issues that arise and the government, at, sometimes at a very high level, calls and says, I know David has had to deal with this in the Washington Post probably more than I have, um, that something should not be published. And we in my organization, usually err on the side of safety and of security um, if we're persuaded that there really is an interest. Um, one of those the earliest experiences I had was during the Carter administration when my colleague John Palmer happened on a Sunday night to notice the lights at the White House and the West Wing and the activity and went back to work. And I mean, he really came upon um, the unusual activity, and it was the rescue operation. Mm. And he confronted Jody Powell, and Jody Powell said, you know, if you go on the air now and discuss the activity at the White House, you are endangering everyone's lives, but the president will give you the exclusive the minute this operation is over. 
And so that's how NBC broke that story when it was sadly over and with a terrible outcome. But there is never an excuse to publicize something that will endanger the lives of people in the field, yeah. ours or others. Yeah. Um, once that threshold has been crossed and you have satisfied yourself that there is a really important public interest in the information. And we can disagree on some of these instances. I, I think that Dana Priest's work in the past on uh, some of the, you know, the, the prisons in Poland and elsewhere, there were a number of instances where I think that publication was the right choice. David? Well, um, I, I, I agree with, with Andrea that in these conversations with government officials about stories, we take very seriously any argument that someone's life might be uh, in danger. Um, I think one of the benefits of having covered conflicts for journalists is that you know what danger looks like. It's not an abstract, and you know the Americans in uniform or not who, who are in danger uh, daily, so you can personalize it more. I'll just share two kind of uh, touchstones for me uh, as a journalist on, on this question, uh, Michael. The first is my late, great, uh, beloved publisher, Catherine Graham. Mrs. Graham, in the mid-1980s, uh, was concerned about the post-coverage of national security issues. And so she gave a speech. I was then a young editor, which became kind of the law and the prophets. You read the speech pretty carefully. And in this speech, Mrs. Graham said that if one of her Washington Post journalists had a piece of information that we were considering publishing, we had a responsibility to go to the agency that might be affected in the government and uh, let them give us an argument why the publication of this information would be damaging either to, in terms of loss of, of life or, or damage to national security. So that, that I, Peter is an editor now, I'm not. I'm a columnist, so I'm out of this world. But certainly in the time that I was an editor, we took that seriously. So we would talk to government officials, as, as, as you know. And we would, we would have extensive, serious discussions, but we would reserve the right, as Ms. Graham insisted that we had to, uh, to, to make our own final judgments. And sometimes, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd love for you to respond, but sometimes when government officials tell us that human lives will be at risk, um, that is stretching things, it turns out. And that, so that, that kind of uh, makes, that harms the relationship of trust. If somebody tells you somebody could die, and it turns out that that was overstated. The second thing I'll briefly mention is from the, my other uh, uh, mentor in this area, and that was Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley, you know, we all have an image of Ben, just slam it, you know, I'll go get it there. And uh, he was that way. Uh, well, he did, he did talk like that. He, he worked hard at being Ben Bradley. Uh, he was good at it. But Ben um, had served in the Navy during World War II. He was a combat veteran. He took uh, national security issues seriously in his way. And Ben used to say, um, our readers don't need to know the wiring diagram. They need to know the information because that's part of being an informed citizen. But ah, I can remember a couple of stories where he just had little appetite for some of the very minute details. They thought, you know, we're, we're blowing secrets needlessly. They didn't, didn't help inform readers. So those would be the two baselines for me. What Mrs. Graham said, you got to talk to people. What Ben said, you you got, you got to tell the truth, you know, hold people accountable, but we don't have to put in the wiring diagram. I couldn't say it any better. I mean, they, they've hit the two, you know, Andrea and David have already hit the, is it in the public interest? And are lives going to be in danger? I think what worries me is we now live in an age where so many different people are calling themselves journalists, and they're not the traditional journalistic institutions that follow these rules and have these morals and these ethics and have internal boards where they discuss the right and wrong of something. I think, you know, the question for me is, and the thing I worry about is, 
is that is it in the public interest now being replaced by is it a sexy headline and is it going to give me a lot of clicks and a lot of followers? And I think sadly, everybody on the stage understands what journalism is. I don't know that the people on the receiving end of that information can easily distinguish anymore whether someone has Andrea Mitchell's reputation or David's or Peter's and if that's a reliable source of information when they're flooded with interesting, sexy headlines that are very fun to talk about with people you know. So I worry about what's happening to journalism in this age of just get some information out there, we'll check the facts later. Yeah. Peter? I would just say um, those conversations that David described continue. Um, on, and the, the major uh, roadblocks for us on publishing on uh, if a life is in danger, if sources and methods would be exposed needlessly. Um, we take that very seriously. I would say that different parts of the government throw around the lives will be in danger more facilely than others. So I've, you know, without talking about particular administrations, I've had people at the White House throw that at me um, when I thought there was little substance to it. I will say, in my experience, the intelligence community uses that card much more carefully, much more occasionally, and with much more deliberation, so that when we do hear that from them, uh, we take it very seriously, rather than from some political appointee who's shouting down the phone at me. But we do have serious conversations about certain stories. It's not like it's happening every day. Um, when, and there are levels of escalation where we know how serious this thing is getting. I mean, normally a reporter is talking to CIA public affairs, then public affairs may want to talk to me. But if it gets to the point where the director or the deputy director wants to talk to Marty Barron, the editor, then we know um, we're dealing with something consequential. And that does come along once or twice a year, maybe. But it's not frequent. Yeah. So let me let me say one thing, and then we'll 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 do the we'll do WikiLeaks. And what I want to say is that, and I don't know how how many people know this, but the Washington Post, as you know, had all of the Snowden documents. Yes. Every single one of them, um, and didn't post them anywhere so that everybody could read them. They actually you actually secured them, physically secured them, and you went through them very carefully and made decisions about. Um, what you thought was in the public interest. Um, and those, for those things, you went to the intelligence community and said, we're going to publish this, and gave the intelligence community an opportunity to talk to you about that, right? So with that context, right, and in, in contrast to what WikiLeaks does, I wonder how you would answer the question of First Amendment protection. So let's come back down this way. Uh, well, I would say um, I don't want to decide who is a journalist and who is not a journalist. I think it's a dangerous road that we've seen abused in many parts of the world. Uh, I certainly don't want the government deciding who's a journalist. Um, and so I'm very ambivalent about uh, the prosecution of Assange, um, particularly when I read the indictment and woven in with this specific hacking charge, which um, I don't know a whole lot about, except that they've had these um, logs for a very long time. The previous administration decided there wasn't a case there. They decided they couldn't bring an espionage case because, obviously, it would implicate other um, publishers. Um, so you know, I would extend First Amendment uh, privileges to WikiLeaks. That's my position. But you said you're ambivalent. So there must yeah. be a, there must the be ambivalence the is side. that um, I disagree with um, tossing material out there um, that puts people in danger, informants, um, people who are in contact with embassies, as we saw with the diplomatic cables or the military cables that were released. Um, and that you know, was opposed by all major publishers who interacted with WikiLeaks and argued against it. Um, but we're on a, to get back to the indictment, you know, we have the government making this specific charge and then talking about protecting sources and using encryption and other things as if this is all nefarious behavior. Um, so I think they've got to you know, get their line straight. 
if they want to go down this road. And I'm reluctant um, to see people, even if I don't personally like them, that's irrelevant. If, um, if they are publishing and they're going to be public, prosecuted for publishing, even if there's another pretext or fig leaf that the government is using, then um, I would oppose it. I really admire the way the Washington Post handled that in that there was this definite sense of responsibility that was part of their process that came into this. And it wasn't just to put it all out there and let the world figure it out, which we've seen with some other hacks. I think that the specific encouraging um, someone to hack and helping them do that is a step beyond what any journalist I know would have done in that case. So but all I would just add is I don't disagree with encouraging someone to hack is um, is not journalistic behavior, but that is an unproven charge at this point right. based on fragmentary information. I want to see the case in court, and then we can make a better decision. We're journalists. We need all the facts first, Michael. <laughs> you actually wrote a piece on this the other day. I, 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 I did. I wrote a column. Uh, the lead was, uh, is Julian Assange a journalist? Uh, the Justice Department has tried to sidestep this in the way that they drew the indictment, focusing on the alleged uh, role that Assange played in, in helping steal information by cracking a, a password, um, but that we're going to have a debate about, about the First Amendment here, um, no matter what the Justice Department's intent was. Um, I, 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 this is one on which I, I feel torn, to be honest. Um, it's often said by people in the ACLU that um, free speech matters, not in the case of the speech that we all love, um, and you know, it, it matters with extreme speech. The ACLU defends the Nazis who were marching in Skokie, Illinois, um, the, who every right-thinking person uh, would want to sh shut up. But, but that's, that's the case that tests whether you're really committed. So you could argue that, that Assange, um, who uh, as a former Guardian editor wrote uh, recently, is a really difficult person uh, to deal with. Maybe he's the extreme test that that she says you say even so, and even with the, these facts, it's still a First Amendment issue. I, I'm still struggling with that. In the reporting that I did when the indictment came out, and as as Peter and Suzanne have said, we we do need to know. Um, because just because the Justice Department asserted this is true, that doesn't mean it's it's true that he that he in effect helped steal the documents. Um, but I was um, surprised by how many uh, First Amendment um, uh, lawyers and 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 spokespeople I talked to did not want to defend um, Assange. One example is Bruce Brown, who's the executive director of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. A, a genuinely respected figure in, in our in our area who said, um, "No newsroom lawyer, and I know Peter and I know this is very true in our newsroom, would ever condone doing what it's alleged that Assange did, um, helping a source break a law actively helping. That's the allegation." Um, uh, Similar comments from other people. David Kendall, a lawyer at Williams and Connolly, who really, you know, has earned his spurs as a defender of these issues. Similarly uh, cautious. So um, I, I'm going to come back to what Suzanne rightly said. We need to know more, I think, before we make judgments about the kind of ultimate First Amendment issue here. And I think if the allegation is proved, then as David just pointed out, it is something that no journalist would, would do ethically. Um, full disclosure, I'm, on, I'm just stepping down after the, my, the end of my term on Bruce Brown's steering committee for the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And so I, I would tend to agree with him on that principle. Um, I have a problem with what is alleged, but it has not been proved. And I interviewed the editor from WikiLeaks the other day on our program. And aside from this case, which was considered by the Justice Department under Obama and not prosecuted because they did not want to get into this tangle about journalism and, and First Amendment issues, um, I am also 
well aware, as we all are, of the Mueller indictment, which refers to WikiLeaks as Organization One, and as a willing conveyor of, of um, jump from the GRU. So I have a real problem with WikiLeaks as an organization if the Mueller allegations are established uh, for what they did in 2016. Working with the Foreign Intelligence Service. Working with Foreign Intelligence Services and, and dumping in a targeted way um, particular data um, that has been tailored to influence an American election. That is not what journalists do. So on the broader issue of WikiLeaks, not this case, um, these are not journalists. So there's both the tools used and then the, what the intent right. is, right? Is the intent to inform or is the intent to some other purpose? To influence. To influence. That's not what we do. Okay, so before we go to questions, I just want to ask each of you one more question, which is um, what advice would you have for young reporters who are just starting on this beat? Suzanne. Oh my gosh, mm. run. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, um, I'm going to completely date myself, but I remember being a young intern at CBS News in New York, and uh, they had just had the unveiling of the new studio, and Dan Rather came down, and he said, I understand we have some interns in the room. I just want to tell you there's still time to choose another profession, and you should do it. And I thought, that's the worst welcome I've ever heard in my life. But it's actually, you know, once you talk to Dan a little bit more, it, it's a very difficult business. And I think a lot of young people, when I was coming up through school, got into it because they wanted to be on television or because they wanted to be an influencer for reasons that weren't sort of that core, old school, ear-informing you know, um, decision-making in this country. Um, there's a responsibility that used to come with it that I think is critical. So my advice to young people today would be to look deep in your heart and ask yourself what you really want to do, because you're probably not going to make a lot of money. You're probably not going to get a lot of people patting you on the back saying, great job. More often than not, people are going to complain about what you got wrong and never focus on what you got right. And there are the realities of that. And if you have the personality to truly overcome it and to truly push forward for something that you passionately believe in, then go for it. You might be that next generation that changes the way we get information in the future and that takes us back to what I think our core values are. Andrea? I love it so much and uh, don't want to discourage people from having the great, vibrant experience that all of us have and, and hope to continue to have. I, I would say that right now it is more difficult than ever in my experience. I've covered Republican and Democratic presidents and administrations and secretaries of state. I've never seen um, the media treated as, as a hostile entity, as the enemy of the people um, by kind some. Kind of like the intelligence community. And, well, <laughs> uh, we share a lot in this, as you first suggested. We, I've never seen it be this adversarial. There, a certain amount of questioning and adversarial, you know, relationship is healthy. I don't mean mm -hmm. cynical, and I don't, I just mean healthy skepticism. Um, but after covering, you know, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and both Bushes and Bill Clinton and Obama, I've never seen anything quite like this. And it does affect the cabinet secretaries. So um, I respect that the intelligence leaders are keeping their heads down. But the, I think it does, um, it does affect the kind of information that is being communicated to the president from other agencies and other, other sources. And that is very dangerous because facts matter. Yeah. And so I, I really worry about that. I worry about our ability to ferret out the news and to get it coherently yeah. uh, explained to people. But I have to say, <laughs> That said, it's never been more important. It's never been tougher. But the joy and the, um, the privilege and the responsibility and the excitement of being an eyewitness to history, of traveling around the world, of communicating big ideas, of writing great, you know, one tries at least, great stories, of covering um, things that one never expects, often horrifying things. We've all been through 9-11. Um, the tragedy of Notre Dame, I mean, just things that you never think are going to happen. And then trying to rise to the level of explaining it 
to the public is just profoundly important. So I would urge every young person who really wants a great adventure in life, mm -hmm. if they feel a sense of, of patriotism and responsibility, to go for it. Peter. <clears throat> well, just to, uh, as a practical matter, if someone uh, was coming out of college and told me they wanted to cover intelligence, I would say, hold on a little bit. Um, I would encourage them to cover the military, to cover the federal courts, to get some experience on Capitol Hill, to maybe spend a little time overseas. And then when you've had some seasoning um, and you've started to know people across Washington, then come and say that you want to cover intelligence. Intelligence is not a starter job. Um, and if you look at the best intelligence reporters, you know, they do have experience in the Pentagon, they do have experience in other parts of town, and they work their way up to this. David. Um, I, I said uh, publicly once uh, about uh, Andrea Mitchell that one reason I admired her so much was that she never felt that she was more important than the story she was covering. And I think that's uh, why she is such a professional. And I think that's the yardstick that I would apply for the person who wants to be a journalist, especially covering this very sensitive, nuanced subject of, of intelligence. Uh, you have to have a, a humility that you, you're not more important than what you're covering. Um, this is a hard time to be a journalist, but it's a great time to be a journalist. Um, you know, you, sometimes in our business, like in any business, you wonder, does this really make a difference? Um, am I really doing something that matters? This is not a time when we worry about that. I mean, we, we know that, that being doing our jobs, avoiding you know, Trump derangement, and not playing the role he'd love us to play is, is permanent, I mean, just be doing our jobs makes a difference. Thanks for listening to our bonus pod. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us for our next regular episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. And a special thanks to Levi Magyar for his on-site audio production at this event. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod. And follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. One, two, Three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.